Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to the Hemingway List Podcast, Book 5, Chapter 5, uh, Episode 1155. A lot of symmetry. I don't know if that's the word, but last night when I typed in the podcast number, 1155, Part 5, Chapter 5, it was very satisfying. I'll give you that. My partner and I have just been out for a bit of a comedy night. We've been doing that the last few weeks, going out of a weekend and seeing a comedy show. It's a, a good way to adjust back to the world. Here in Melbourne, we had a lot of lockdowns. And even despite the lockdowns, you know, when we didn't have a lockdown, still like, you know, everything was closed. You couldn't, you, know, you could go out for dinner, but it was all very segmented and normal things like concerts and stuff were still a little bit like, eh, we don't really do those. Most of them getting cancelled. We're starting to go back to normal life. And I feel like comedy shows is a good way to adjust back to normal life because you're acknowledging and poking fun at how weird everything is at the moment. You know, comedians do that so well. Anyway, we went and watched one just tonight, just got back. And I thought I'd recommend to you guys this show that's on TV um, called The 100. It's an Australian panel show. If you like shows like, um, I guess like Would I Lie to You or 8 Out of 10 Cats Does Countdown, things like that where it's like a bit of a, like a British style panel show with some comedians, although this is obviously Australian. Uh, just light-hearted, humorous, few comedians on a panel uh, with a host who's typically a comedian as well. So the host of this is Andy Lee of Hamish and Andy fame. Um, and there is three panelists who are all typically comedians or TV personalities. And then there's also on Zoom 100 random regular Australians um, <clears throat> sort of representing a cross-section of all the different types of Australians out there, I guess. And that 100 votes to give a percentage of, like, you know, uh, who prefers peanut butter rather than Vegemite. And, you know, they vote, and then you get an idea of what percentage of people, you know, and then the, the panellists have to guess at the percentages, and there's lots of jokes and little quips and humour and stuff like that. Anyway... I'm explaining a TV show that you probably won't watch, but I would recommend it, The 100. The reason I say all this is because one of the panellists is on every single week, not the host, the panellist called Mike Goldstein. He was at the show tonight, the, the stand-up comedy show that we saw. And uh, anyway, sometimes I just like to tell you guys what life is like over here in Melbourne and what I've been up to. So there you go. Today is one of those days. Look up The 100 with Andy Lee. See if you can find an episode. I don't know where you'd watch it. It's on like Channel 9 here, so I don't know if it's on any streaming services. Probably have to just like, you know, illegally get a torrent of it, if that still is a thing. But, um, yeah, that's my recommendation. Give it a watch. See if the Aussie humour translates to your country's humour. BYO discussion prompts today, please, for Book 5, Chapter 5. I was feeling a bit mush-brained last night when I did the podcast. It might have been a little bit later than usual, and I guess my brain wasn't working. Techrific, though, 
came in with the goods. It says, religion has become another source of division in the family. Thank you, by the way, Techrific, for suggesting some discussion prompts. Um, I feel like your discussion prompts are so much better than mine, <laughs> especially recently. So um, I do appreciate that. Fam- feel free any day to just override my discussion prompts and chuck some more in the comments. Anyone, by the way, not just you, Techrific, anyone. If you've got some good points for discussion from the chapter, feel free to chuck questions in the comments rather than comments in the comments. Uh, families quarrel and break up for all sorts of reasons. There's rarely a single thing, but usually there's a trigger that sort of gets the thing going. Is this increased focus on Paidy dividing Madame Buttonbrook and Clara from the rest of the family such a trigger? Or do you think there are more serious divisions going on beneath the surface? Is religion really a theme here or merely window dressing that's a good point yeah well said it is rarely a single thing but then there is usually a sort of defining trigger and i'm even seeing that at the moment where um with my own family with like kind of vaccines where there's a few people in my family who you know i love they're my family members who don't want to get vaccinated and that's fine but it kind of means like we can't invite them to stuff sometimes because of that because we've got mandates here for it and then it's drawn driven this wedge in because they see it as like us shunning them uh, and not wanting to see them anymore because we haven't seen them for so long because we can't I don't know it's a whole thing and um, I don't know I just feel like is that just the trigger that's kind of... This is my extended family, by the way. I'm not in, t- in the middle of some like huge family drama. I'm just sort of saying, you know, distant colors, cousins and re- relatives that you rarely see. And then during a pandemic, you just, oh, look at that. I haven't seen you for two years. And then in their head, they're like, it's because I'm not vaccinated, isn't it? It's like, oh, it's actually not. <laughs> it's actually nothing to do with that. Anywho. Uh, I'm a bit chit-chatty tonight, aren't I? Techrific also threw this discussion prompt in. Tony mentions Gronlich at the end. Is that to guilt trip her mother? I feel like that's a bit of a dirty move, right? Like, it was more her father's doing than her mother's. And now her father's gone. And to sort of put that onto the mum, who I don't think she was really as on board with it as the father was. I feel like there was a comment that she made even earlier on where she was sort of like, before they got married, just kind of dabbling in like, are we sure that this is what we're doing? Anywho. Techrific says, this chapter was another vignette, almost slightly surreal in its absurdity, but the genuine grief and perhaps feelings of guilt of Madame Buddenbrook that seems to have triggered this intensified religious fervor, seems more introverted and directed at herself than towards her children. Tony, however, is one of amongst the children that is provoked the most. There are these comical moments that I liked. For instance, the eating competition between Pastor Trishk and Clothilde, that unsurprisingly, Clothilde came out the winner. The parade of the Sunday school girls and the animalistic description of the parrot-faced older ladies or horse-faced Pastor Trishk added some nice levity to the chapter. 
TA131901 says, My favorite funny bit was when the missionary criticized Tony's curly hair and she in turn laughed at his baldness. In Jane Eyre, the fake pious Mr. Brocklehurst complains about a girl's curly hair and demands that it's cut off. Were curls considered worldly and immoral at this time? Swims in the month for the answer, saying, I believe it denotes vanity on the part of the wearer, which, based on my readings of 19th century novels, was much deplored by the English clergy. Yeah, vanity in English, in England in general, I think, is deplored. All right. Cool. Are we ready to push on? I sure am. Chapter 6 goes like this. Sievert Tibertius was a small, narrow man with a large head and a thin, long, blonde beard parted in the middle so that he sometimes put the ends back over his shoulders. Well, that's a long beard. A quantity of his of little woolly ringlets covered his round head. His ears were large and outstanding, very much curled up at the edges and pointed at the tips like the ears of a fox. His nose sat like a tiny flat button on his face, his cheekbones stood out and his grey eyes, usually drawn close together and blinking about rather stupidly, could at certain moments widen quite extraordinarily and get larger and larger, protruding more and more until the, they almost sprang out of their sockets. This pastor Tibertius, who came from Riga, had preached for some years in central Germany and now touched at the town on his way back home where a living had been offered to him. Armed with the recommendation of a brother of the cloth who had eaten at least once in Meng Street of mock turtle soup and ham with onion sauce, he waited upon the Frau Consul and was invited to be her guest for a few days. He occupied the spacious guest chamber of the corridor in the first story, but he stopped longer than he had expected. Eight days passed, and still there was this or that to be seen, the dance of death and the apostle clock in St. Mary's, the town hall, the ancient ship's company, the cathedral clock with the immovable eyes. Ten days passed, and he spoke repeatedly of his departure, but at the first word of demur, he... Sorry, from at the worst at the first word of demur from anybody would postpone anew. He was a better man than her Jonathan or Thierry Trichk. He thought not at all about Frau Antonia's curls and wrote her no letters. Strange to say he paid his attentions to Clara, the younger and more serious sister, in her presence when she spoke, entered or left the room, his eyes would grow surprisingly larger and larger and open out until they nearly jumped out of his head. He would spend most of the entire day in her company, in spiritual or worldly converse, or reading aloud to her in his high voice, and with the droll, jerky pronunciation of his Baltic home. Even on the first day, he said, Permit me to say, Frau Consul, what a treasure and blessing from God you have in your daughter Clara. She is certainly a wonderful child. You're right, replied the Frau Consul, but he repeated his opinion so often that she began looking him over with her pale blue eyes and led him on to speak of his home, his connections, and his prospects. She learned that he came of a mercantile family, that his mother was with God, 
and that he had no brothers and sisters, that his old father had retired and lived on his income in Riga, an income which would sometime fall to him, Pastor Tibertius. He also had sufficient living from his calling. Clara Buddenbrook was now in her nineteenth year. She had grown to be a young lady of an austere and peculiar beauty, with a tall, slender figure, dark, smooth hair, and stern yet dreamy eyes. Her nose was slightly hooked, her mouth a little too firmly closed. In the household, she was most intimate with her poor and pious cousin Clothilde, whose father had lately died, and whose idea it was to establish herself soon, which meant to go into a pension somewhere with the money and furniture which she had inherited. Clara had nothing of Clothilde's meek and hungry submissiveness. On the contrary, with the servants, and even with her brothers and sister and mother, a commanding tone was usually with her. Her low voice, which seemed only to drop with decision, and never to rise with a question, had an imperious sound and could often take on a short, hard, impatient, haughty quality on days, for example, when Clara had a headache. Before the father's death had shrouded the family in mourning, she had taken part with irreproachable dignity in the society of her parents' house and other houses of like rank. But when the Frau Consul looked at her, she could not deny that despite the stately dowry and Clara's domestic prowess, it would not be easy to marry her off. None of the god, none of the godless, jovial, claret-drinking merchants of their circle would answer in the least. A clergyman would be the only suitable partner for this earnest and God-fearing maiden. After the Frau Consul had conceived this joyous idea, she responded with friendliness to the delicate advances of Pastor Tibertius. And truly the affair developed with precision. On a warm, cloudless July afternoon, the family took a walk. The Frau Consul, Antoni, Christian, Clara, Clothilde, Erica, Grunlich, and Mamsel Jungmann, with Pastor Tibertius in their midst, went out far beyond the castle gate to eat strawberries and clotted milk or porridge at a wooden table laid out of doors, going after the meal into the large nut garden which ran down the river. In the shade of all sorts of fruit trees, between currant and gooseberry bushes, asparagus and potato patches, Sivert, Tiburtius and Clara Buttonbrook stopped a little behind the others. He, much the smaller of the two, with his beard parted back over his shoulders, had taken off his broad-brimmed black hat from his big head, and he wiped his brow now and then with his handkerchief. His eyes were larger than usual, and he carried on with her a long and gentle conversation, in the course of which they both stood still, and Clara, with a serious, calm voice, said her yes. After they returned, the Frau Consul, a little tired and overheated, was sitting alone in the landscape room when Pastor Tibertius came and sat beside her. Outside there reigned the pensive calm of the Sabbath afternoon, and they sat inside and held in the brightness of the summer evening, a long low conversation at the end of which the Frau Consul said, Enough, my dear her pastor, you offer coinc- your offer coincides with my motherly plans for my daughter, and you, on your side, have not chosen badly, that I can assure you. That I can assure you. Who would have thought that your coming and your stay here in our house would be so wonderfully blessed? I will not speak my final word today, for I must write first to my son, 
the consul who is at present as you know away. You will travel tomorrow if you live and have your health to Riga to take up your work and we expect to go for some weeks to the seashore. You will receive word from me soon and God grant that we shall have a happy meeting. Alright, there we go. Another chapter for you. I am not sure, but is that the same seaside that they went to earlier in the book? Maybe that can be the discussion prompt. Alright, thanks guys. See you tomorrow.